very much into incorporating upscaling and supporting market ready versus the ideation play or the innovation theater with all the respect of both words. Uh, I think we don't have time to, to keep reflecting on ideas. We need to start adopting. We need to start bringing adoption into value chain. The only way to disrupt this and uh, is not by improving 1% or 2% or 5% efficiency, but by radical thinking. Ideas like this, underwater transport systems, how can you make it work? You know, Because we can build everything from scratch, it's much better and quicker for us to really become net zero and net positive than trying to change an existing industry with vested interest. The consumers doesn't trust us today for very obvious reasons. The automotive industry has operated with smokes and mirrors tactics. So really to, to make this crucial significant transition now into electric vehicles, we have to get them on board and make them feel trust in this movement. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of COP26 Covered. Edie's daily podcast show broadcast from the ground here in Glasgow at the Climate Summit. Day 10, or is it day 11 of COP26? I can't quite keep up. But what I can do is bring you another jam-packed episode of the show today because we're talking innovation. From the adoption of market-ready solutions and the scaling up of electric vehicles, all the way through to a rotating zero-emission submarine. All of that and more right here on the COP26 Covered podcast. So yes, hello, good evening, good morning, uh, good afternoon. Once again, from my windowless hotel room here in Glasgow. Don't worry, I haven't gone crazy just yet. Uh, Edie's dynamic duo, Matt and Sarah, have readjusted to life uh, after COP back down south and, and they've once again been covering all of the major announcements and producing some need-to-know roundups from across the climate talks, including a great piece, I must say, produced by Sarah to mark what is Gender Day here at COP. So Sarah collated a a non-exhaustive list of women whose voices have been integral to the summit so far, including female activists from the Global South and UN representatives as well. So do encourage you to check that article out. Just search for Spotlight on Gender at COP26 uh, and you should see Edie's article coming up there. And so, uh, as well as today being Gender Day, uh, it was also Science and Innovation Day. So... There were many discussions and sessions being had across the various zones here at COP, which were all about demonstrating that science and innovation can deliver climate solutions to meet and accelerate increased ambition. And with that in mind, I thought I'd escape the confines of this room and go and speak with some of the innovators and the experts who are really at the front line developing and investing in some of the technologies and innovations which could ultimately be the difference between us reaching 1.5 degrees or not. So, three great discussions with three people representing different aspects of the innovation value chain. We have a corporate accelerator which helps big businesses adopt sustainable innovations in their supply chain. We've got a real pioneer in the electric performance car market. And we have an entrepreneur who is pioneering the world's first zero emission submarine fleet that cleans up our oceans whilst transporting cargo. And I think we'll go in that order because first up, I sat down with Marcella Navarro, who runs Project X Global, a WWF-founded corporate accelerator which has a mission to transform the sustainability performance of 10 industry value chains within 10 years. So Marcella and I discussed what that transformation looks like, along with her advice for sustainability and energy professionals looking to scale up clean innovations within their business. So... 
Here's that chat with Marcella in full. So, uh, here we are then, uh, once again, in the action zone here at COP26. The giant globe above us is still turning and the conversations are still flowing um, beneath it. Uh, and I'm delighted to be joined here by Marcella Navarro, who's the chief executive of Project X Global. Marcella's fresh off the stage over in the pavilion area. So, Marcella, hello. Thank you for joining us. Look, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here and in no better place than the action zone today. Exactly, yeah. It's a nice, it's a bit tranquil compared with the, the hustle and bustle outside. Um, so for those of us who might not be aware of Project X Global, perhaps you could start with a quick summary of, of what it is you do and, and how that all ties in with this global summit. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, look, Project X Global is a global catalyst and our mission is to help reach the adoption point. Reaching the adoption point means that at least 10% of the total procurement in the 10 industry value chains that create more damage to biodiversity and climate are channeled to sustainable alternatives. Okay, interesting. So what's going to kind of get us to that point? What, what are the biggest barriers to, to reaching that kind of adoption that you talk about? Look, for me, the key things are um, one integration of key four risks would be the integration of the procurement risk, the integration of the funding risk, the integration of the science risk, and the integration of the environmental risk. Without integration and without looking at the problem at a systems level, we will not be able to achieve the adoption point. Okay, interesting. What does that integration look like then? Do you have kind of tangible examples, ideas, thoughts on, on yeah, what, is, what does that kind of mean and how does that translate into action? Definitely, yes. I think that we have been very used to see the problem in isolation. We look at the procurement problem. We look at... Uh, what is the problem for the buyer? What is the problem for the innovator? So if we continue to look at problems in isolation or to look at companies in isolation, not as members of a system, we will not be able to achieve any solution. For example, there are companies in the value chain that are probably net positive, probably some others are net negative. And in aggregation, the system performs as a combination of forces with different powers and with different tensions. So that's the fundamental about integration. You don't look at an engine just as valves or as pistons. You look at engines, you look at integrated systems with weaknesses and strengths, with possibilities and with opportunities and also with risks. So talk to us about the session you just come out of then. It sounds like it was a, a lively session. We were just talking off air about it. Um, food systems transformation, taking holistic approaches was the title. So what was the purpose of it? What were the key outcomes? The purpose was to highlight the importance of systems change uh, into a, a way to address the problem of food innovation or any innovation really, but the case specifically was food innovation. We cannot look at food innovation without systems. So the big outputs of this is what is happening when you talk about research, what is happening when you talk about funding, what is happening when you talk about procurement. There are different areas in the system that are not integrated today. So systems change now is the hashtag actually the, the forum was using and how we can move quickly into the adoption of these innovations versus the innovation theater of innovation per se. Yeah, do we have any kind of uh, examples, global best practice examples of, of a holistic sustainable approach to food systems for example in action or any discussed there? 
Well, actually, we were referenced by EIT Climate Kick as one of the good examples, FedEx. So FedEx's objective is to shift 107 million tons from unsustainable sources of oil and protein to sustainable sources. And in order to do that, we look at what happens with the buyer's market, what happens with the funding market, what happens with the integrated risk process, and what happens with the confidence levels. So two key points in there, look, are... Adoption cannot happen without the funding required, but adoption cannot happen without the corporates wanting to buy. And the situation today is that if the corporates, including the government, do not buy from alternatives, nothing happens. But if the government or the corporates do buy from alternatives, nothing happens either. So it is about incentives and the recalibration of incentives, and it is about a consistent structure of process risk and outcomes to be able to shift to the 1.3 trillion commitment that is what Project X is about. Very interesting and, and as we're speaking on this episode of COP26 covered which is being aired on Science and Innovation Day, it's also the day focusing on gender of course which we'll be covering extensively on ED but just on this innovation theme, this essentially runs through your business model right, we've been talking about it a lot already, without innovations you, you don't have those kind of solutions to adopt at scale. So what would you kind of like to see come out of this COP in the area of sustainable innovation? Is it, is it about mobilisation of finance, more regulatory support, the fostering of collaboration, all of those things? Well, look, I think they're probably the right answer is definitely all of those things. Uh, but I would like to concretely see a tangible, formal commitment from the governments and from the corporates to achieve the adoption point to commit to shift at least 10% of the total procurement to sustainable alternatives. I would also like to see a commitment to put the incentives in the right place, meaning there are incentives for organizations shifting to sustainable alternatives and there are commitments that need to be followed and need to be respected. So adoption targets in place, definitely, incentives in place, and uh, these included into the commitments that are going to be published as key actions and key outcomes of this COP26. And when, it, when we then start to look at the innovations we're talking about practically um, to, to scale up and, and to solve climate change ultimately, I'm quite interested in this dichotomy between whether this is a case of more money being invested into R&D for innovations which don't exist today or whether this is about scaling up those innovations which we know already work. I'm, I'm thinking about areas like the built environment which is obviously kind of 40% odd of emissions but we already have so many innovations in that sector whether it's insulation, on-site renewables, renewables, heat pumps, the same could be said for transport, a quarter of emissions, so where do you kind of stand on that? I think for the last couple of years I have been talking about adoption of market-ready innovations, meaning what we refer to market-ready are solutions that are viable. The point is here is why buyers are not incorporating viable solutions into their value chain. We don't have enough time, we know we don't have enough time, so the time to conversion from new ideas and concepts into realities will take us longer versus the time of picking up alternatives that are viable solutions that are there to be part of the value chain and the transformation itself. So very much into incorporating, upscaling and supporting market ready versus the ideation play or the innovation theater with all the respect of both words. Uh, I think we don't have time to, to keep reflecting on ideas. We need to start adopting. We need to start bringing adoption into value chain. So in terms of that adoption then, I guess just finally speaking to this podcast's audience of, of business leaders, sustainability professionals, 
You've previously sat on the other side of the fence, I should mention. You spent a good five or six years at working for RBS Bank. So you've experienced what it's like to try and unlock innovations at scale from inside an organisation. What, what for you would be your kind of key piece of advice then now for businesses who are completely on board with the why, um, but are perhaps struggling to unlock investment or buy-in to deploy and scale up these, these innovations? I would say two things, Luke. Number one is understanding the true cost of low cost. I think that there is no clarity of what is the true cost of low cost alternatives today. And I think it's risky, right? If we don't look at the true cost of what it's considered low cost today, we are not looking into extinction accounting, we are not looking into quality accounting, we are not looking into biodiversity laws, etc. So one first advice is let's look into the true cost of low cost solutions that are today being part of the procurement spent. The second point is demonstration. Close the gap between R&D ideation and incorporation into the value chain through a very cohesive, systematic demonstration process. There is no in-between R&D and procurement today. We see these companies struggling. We see a lot of organizations with competitions, with mid-the-buyer events, with R&D events, or even with accelerators. But there is very few success in the adoption of these alternatives or these potential replacements or these complement replacements into procurement. The systems behind procurement are way too old today and are not open for new appreciation of risk. So confidence level is something that the buyers need, that the funders need, that the academia need, and all these orchestrated in a way that can reduce the risk and the time for adoption. Well, uh, some clear action points, I guess, to take away from our chat here in the Action Zone. Um, Marcella, uh, thank you. Your passion always really shines through in these conversations, so really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Luke. Delighted to be here and good luck. Yes, thank you very much to Marcella there. And, and that chat sets us up nicely for what happened next because I then took a trip from the Blue Zone over to the Green Zone for my next two chats. Um, when I say took a trip, I mean that I left the Blue Zone and suddenly realised that I had about five minutes to make a 25-minute walk. So in stepped Mohammed, uh, a rickshaw driver who very kindly offered to give me a lift. So uh, I hopped onto the back of his bike. I probably should have told him about the weight of all of my filming and audio equipment I was carrying uh, because it was a bit of a struggle getting over the bridge. But uh, Mohammed stepped up, literally, and saved the day. So, needless to say, he was well paid for that effort, and uh, if you want to amuse yourself with the video of me being carted along over Glasgow's famous Squinty Bridge, as it's called, then do check out my LinkedIn profile where I posted a short video earlier. Anyway, um, I managed to hop off one mode of sustainable transport there and talk about another, because when I got into the green zone, I was able to sit down with Frederica Claren, who is the head of sustainability at the Swedish electric performance car brand Polestar which the uh, ED superfans among you might recall was the winner of our coveted Product Innovation of the Year Award at the Sustainability Leaders Awards back in February. So Frederica and I had a chat about what drives innovation mindsets in her business and what needs to happen more generally to reach a tipping point with the electric vehicle market. And uh, the great thing about this part of my day was that it became a bit of a two-for-one offer because straight after speaking with Frederica, I spotted a guy who really epitomises the concept of disruptive innovation and, and challenging incumbent businesses to think differently. 
His name is Dhruv Barua. Uh, I won't give too much of the game away other than to say that Dhruv's latest venture is zero emission. It's actually also net positive and it involves a bit of biomimicry as well for good measure. Now, I will mention that my chat with Dhruv was held outside in what I would call typical Glasgow weather, so apologies in advance for a bit of wind, so to speak. Um, anyway, this is the last you'll hear from me in my hotel room for tonight. Uh, here's my back-to-back chats with Frederica and Dhruv in full. So yes, uh, here we are then in the green zone of COP26, which is uh, nice and, and light and airy um, compared with some of the areas of the blue zone down the road. We're approaching the end of day 10, I think now, of COP, which has of course had a, a strong innovation theme. Earlier in this episode, we heard from Marcella Navarro, who spoke about the adoption of, of market-ready innovations across major industries. Uh, and one of the biggest areas where we need to see this shift is really in transport and the electrification of vehicles, which brings us nicely onto this chat because I'm joined here now by Frederica Claren who is the head of sustainability at the Swedish electric performance car brand and ED product innovation award winner that is Polestar. Frederica, hello, thank you very much for joining us. So for the uninitiated perhaps you could give us a very brief potted history of, of Polestar and how you've got to where you are today here at COP26. Well we're a very young company still and we've only been around for plus years something like that but we were founded in a time where we so clearly know the impact that we have as a business and the challenges that we face uh, as a world we're in a rampant climate crisis but we were also founded in a time where there are solutions to these issues and that we as businesses really can tap into to improve society with what we do and electric vehicles are a solution like that they have an amazing impact already today. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get into it later, but we do LCAs, life cycle assessments of, of our cars, and we actually see that if you choose a Polestar 2 over a comparable petrol car, you can half the emissions uh, with that choice and also then securing renewable energy when charging. And that's just an amazing impact. That's the kind of decrease we need to see in 2021. So we're really here to secure that we now uh, fully tap tap into the potential of electric vehicles. We want to accelerate the transition to electric mobility by well-designed, innovative cars. We want to redefine what premium is. And we also want to talk about the fact that they are not perfect today. We still have a way to go before they are fully sustainable. So we really want to start up a conversation about how can can we now stop focusing on tailpipe emissions and get on the fact that we need to decrease uh, production related emissions for example or environmental human rights violations uh, and also uh, look at how we use cars in a new way also more circular way and uh, I referenced just now that you were uh, an ED Award winner. Um, I should say I didn't decide on any of those winners, but uh, I, did, I did have a look over those entries. Um, and what struck me about the entry that you put forward was that sustainability and, and the kind of climate positive ethos of Polestar is, is about so much more than just the car, right? It referenced this idea of designing towards zero generally as a business. Perhaps you could just explain what that means and what that looks like in practice. Mm. Well, everyone working at Polestar are driven by sustainability and innovation, wanting to do things in a new, better way. And that's why all of us came to Polestar. Um, So we're really trying to uh, support everyone in in, um, 
in doing just that and, and really respecting what they want to do, what feels meaningful to them. So we're not building this huge sustainability organization at Polestar. We're actually just trying to be, build like a competence hub to support everyone in doing more sustainable things and, and making more sustainable choices. Regardless if you work with the cars or if you work with events or uh, communications or sales. And one of the things that we've done is that we've launched a climate bonus for everyone working at, at Polestar, which is based on the climate action you take in your departments. We also do a lot of competence development on sustainability. We've, we have four focus areas in our strategy and we've had training days for all of those focus areas now during the year. So yeah, we're really, we're really trying to support what we already have, this amazing drive and, and, uh, and wanting to do things differently in, in our organization. You referenced uh, LCA's life cycle analysis in, in your vehicles. Tell me a bit more about that then. What does that actually look like and, and why and, and how is Polestar sort of taking that so seriously? Well, life cycle assessments are crucial to understand the environmental impact of the choices that you make. Throughout the product development, we use uh, LCAs to support decisions that engineers do, purchasers do and, and, and so on. So they're really this amazing tool to secure that we make the products as sustainable as possible. But they're also an amazing tool for transparency. So what we do is also that we publish the full LCA for our cars, so Polestar 2 and all of the variants of Polestar 2 that we have come with a full LCA for everyone to read if they want to. So you see the full methodology, the basis of our calculations, but we also uh, make a shorter version in our product sustainability declaration where you see the carbon footprint of the car and the trace risk minerals uh, going in. So we really use it to promote this consumer movement that we need to have now in the automotive industry. The consumers doesn't trust us today uh, for very obvious reasons. The, the automotive industry has operated with smokes and mirrors tactics. I'm sure you know about Dieselgate and so on. So really to, to make this crucial, significant transition now into electric vehicles, we have to get them on board and make them feel trust in this movement. So, so yeah, we're doing everything we can to just provide them with information so they feel like they're doing a conscious decision and really to, to educate them also in, in, in the power that they have. Yeah, it's fascinating. And um, I mean, just looking at this vehicle market more broadly as a whole, um, where are the, the real innovation gaps then, do you think? What are the areas that need more investment, more R&D, um, perhaps to pick up the pace of, of this EV revolution? That's a really good question. Um, as a company, we at Pulsar, we've, we've uh, committed to becoming climate neutral by 2040. And that's gladly something that many co companies are now committing to. We, we hear a lot about that here at COP, of course. But we also know when we look at the science that we have a certain carbon budget left. So it's not only about when we get to net zero, it's how quickly we get there and how quickly we reduce uh, the carbon emissions because we only have 320 gigatons roughly to to emit uh, before we pass one and a half degrees. So we really want to talk about the fact that we need to find solutions that we implement this decade. And, and for a car that means that we need to solve so many issues. There are 20,000 plus components going into a car. 
Uh, and we see innovation on many important areas, like we have big chunks of steel and aluminium going into the car. And there are so interesting, pioneering, uh, innovative projects now going on in the steel and aluminium uh, industry uh, happily. But then we have the, the batteries going into the car. Uh, kind of this this new exploratory area where we really have some major issues that we need to tackle with innovation. The tires, for example, is another area. Uh, we're thinking that the future cars will need tires as well. So we have to focus on, on really securing that all of these components become better and, and in the end climate neutral and we, we need to innovate to do that. So long story short, <laughs> we decided to put out a really a, a moonshot goal for ourselves uh, to create a sense of urgency among our engineers, purchasers, designers that we need to figure this out now. We need to innovate and find solutions now, but also being really communicative about it because we need a sense of urgency in the industry as well. This is bigger than Polestar. So we want to create a climate neutral car by 2030. I'm failing at making it short, sorry. Uh, we call it the Polestar Zero project. and. That's a nine-year project, uh, soon only eight, where we will collaborate with research institutes, uh, other industry colleagues, uh, startups, uh, our suppliers, to now innovate uh, and find solutions on all of these components going into a car. Wow, what, what an ambition to have. And uh, we're talking um, now more broadly about transport. It's of course Transport Day um, on Wednesday of this week, uh, which is the day that this podcast will be listened to, I'm sure, by many of our listeners. What does Polestar want to see come out of this COP from a, a clean transport perspective? Are there any particular policy levers or investment areas where you think uh, the most focus is required? We are coming here wanting to push the industry out of the climate climate echo chamber that we believe at Polestar that we are stuck in. So and that, that we've built that climate echo chamber through communicating ambitious targets. Uh, we see business leaders right and left communicating nice targets, but we're not actually seeing that they align fully uh, with the one and a half degree uh, pathway or that they are presenting actions on how to get there. So we really want to talk about a, that we have this amazing solution in the industry. We're actually one of the few industries that have a, a scalable climate solution that can get us to climate neutral mobility, electric vehicles. We have to adopt them much quicker than we are doing today. Out of 80 million cars sold globally, uh, only two or three million were electric vehicles. That is not where we need to be in 2021 and the industry cannot hold this back any longer. So we really want to talk about that. And we also want to talk about the fact that we now have to focus our investments into making this technology fully sustainable. Uh, car makers are still investing in legacy technology. And we need to, all resources we can find to secure that we, we get the uh, EV technology to a, a sustainable state. We also have to talk about the infrastructure. We need to invest a lot in that. Uh, we're seeing uh, nice tendencies there from governments, for example, on investing in, in infrastructure. But we, we need it to go faster. Uh, we need to solve this in the G20 countries, we think, within this decade. EVs cannot be something for the 2030s. We really need to tap into this potential now. 
Well, that, uh, that tees us up nicely for tomorrow's episode on the podcast, which is going to be very much transport focused. So, um, Frederica, uh, the Polestar story is a, a really inspiring one and, and proof, if ever it was needed, I think, that um, brands with a sustainable and a, and a net zero purpose really can thrive in today's economy. So thank you very much for, for speaking to me. Best of luck uh, with those you. carbon neutral goals. Thank you for having us and thank you for covering this. No worries. Um, so um, I'm excited to say now that I'm going to stay right here in the green zone because uh, I've just spotted someone that lives and breathes innovation uh, and is here with the prototype of a, an incredible looking product. So I'm going to go and have a chat with him right now. Drew, hello, how are you? I'm doing very well, Luke. How are you doing? Oh, I'm not too bad. Um, I suppose I should explain uh, what's going on here right now. I've just come outside of the, the green zone. It's officially dark, it's officially wet, it's raining, we're hidden under an umbrella. But uh, the man I'm speaking with is a fantastic man. You're an adventurer, an investor, a TED talker, an advisor to the government, and most recently a founder and a CEO of this exciting new product organisation called Ocean Ways. So talk to us about what we're looking at right now and, and how you've managed to kind of bring this innovation here to the world stage at well, what you're looking at now is a 2.4 meter scaled but working prototype of the world's first zero emission cargo transport system or zero emission submarines. Wow. Okay. Zero emission submarines. So does this kind of, I guess, rival sort of cargo shipping industry or is it a replacement? Yeah, we are, we are not competing with the big shipping in industry right now. We're focusing on small and short routes, island to island delivery, remote communities in hurricane season, for example, because you can go under, under the weather. So we go under, say, 100 meters below the surface. So remote islands, remote communities, uh, Guernsey, uh, postal services, not definitely at the scale of uh, 25,000 containers. Not right now. And so I should explain to our listeners, we're looking at a kind of small uh, prototype, obviously, of the submarine um, that's kind of slowly rotating. It's looking really nice, even in this kind of wet and windy weather. Um, what's the real size version of this going to look like? The real size is going to be a 20 meter submarine that can carry one 20 foot container worth of cargo in the front. Wow. OK. And I assume we're not at that point yet where that's... We will start building uh, maybe next year. Uh, but we hope to deploy it in the water end of next year as well. So it's super aggressive in our timelines. Yeah, okay. Um, what have been the kind of... The ch- the, the, I've got so many questions here. Yeah. What have been the sort of challenges getting this off the ground and getting this to this point? And, and what, what do you see as the important next steps to, to make this a reality? Yeah, I think I, one more thing I forgot to mention is that this is the world's first zero emission cargo submarine. So we not only deliver cargo with zero emission or not emitting any pollutants, but we also clean up the ocean as we deliver cargo. So we've got microplastics filtration system, as you can see on top, uh, there's a three-phase filtration system and on the sides as well. So it's actually net positive. So we are giving back to the ocean with every mile of cargo delivery we're doing for our customers to help them meet their net zero commitments. Correct. Challenges were around like, how do you build a submarine? <laughs> where do you start building a submarine? And yeah, that's where we started, went to the drawing board. Um, what is the cost of building a submarine and how can we disrupt uh, uh, the, the shipping industry by thinking differently and radical thinking and to help them decarbonize so basically submarine is what someone many people have not explored because it's super expensive to maintain super expensive to operate and build so looking at first principles engineering going back to the basics how can we bring the cost low for example the the hull you see now is actually made out of uh, reclaimed sewer pipes 
So people ask me, is it titanium? No, I went to the landfill and got the sewer pipes to build the main hull. So reuse and circularity is right in the middle of this whole project as well. So in the, in the big 20 meter one, we'll be reusing a lot of materials that will really bring down the cost of all the submarines to a level people have not seen before. Mm. And that's the only way to scale. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about the kind of waste element of this, because plastic waste is obviously something you've campaigned yeah. a lot about in the past. Yes. Um, where does that come in? Oh, so we have this microplastic filtration system. That's like a, uh, it's just an extension of all my work around ocean conservation. So we have this three-phase filtration system, like fish gills, on both the sides of the submarine. I can show you now. I can really, I can really show you now. Yeah, let's have a look. Uh, so here, you can see this. This is 3D printed for now, mm -hmm. but in the future, it's going to be more and more enhanced. For example, so you can have see the different uh, sizes of, of the mesh as well. So the big one, small one, and the small one. This is today, but as we start deploying this in the water, it's going to become better and better, and much mature, you know. And we can we'll be able to collect more microplastics. But most importantly, we can collect data, data that will help us understand where exactly is the plastic concentrated, at what depth, and 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 other data around ocean acidification. But again, who's going to pay for all this data? Not right now. We need a commercial model. That's why we do cargo transport. Mm. To fund ocean restora restoration. Interesting, okay, yeah, so it's essentially like sort of fish gills, as you say, yeah. like sweeping up plastic Biomimicry, waste from the ocean. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so in terms of uh, the, you mentioned the kind of government, the role of governments here, what do you want to see happening before we kind of perhaps get onto COP, yeah. but from a government perspective, regulation, what do you need? Well, um, this is a very unregulated space, so there is no regulation around underwater commercial transport right now. So now we are working with the government, so we're really lucky to have uh, the support of the Department for Transport to build, to do a feasibility study on the, on, on the 20 meter submarine. And with that, we have support of the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency. And definitely, I believe the Royal Navy would be keen to help us as well. So looking at regulatory framework to really commercialize the underwater transport system. But also we're looking at incentives around VAT incentives. For example, if you buy an electric car, you get tax benefits, right? We're looking at getting some VAT incentives for a zero emission transport, for example. So we're looking at support from the government to really stimulate the, the, the customers to buy our services. Okay, interesting. And, and so now thinking back where we are yeah. here in a very blustery uh, yeah. COP26, um, what does a successful COP look like for you, both from a ocean ways perspective, yeah. but also more generally in terms of innovation and, and how we kind of scale up global innovations globally? Yeah, I mean, from an ocean ways perspective, uh, I believe in radical innovation. I believe in really doing something differently because the systems are in place and we have vested interest in existing systems, for example, shipping industry, right? We've got investment assets already being stuck into the whole economic framework. The only way to disrupt this and uh, is not by improving 1% or 2% or 5% efficiency, but by radical thinking. Ideas like this, underwater transport systems, how can you make it work, you know? Because we can build everything from scratch, it's much better and quicker for us to really become net zero and net positive than trying to change an existing industry with vested interest. So that's what I'm trying to inspire people, radical thinking. Guys, we have to think radically and, and leading by example. I mean, I don't want to claim that, but I think we are doing something radical here. And I want people to really get inspired and start thinking, yeah, let's do this differently. Why do we have to scale? For example, people are asking me, what is, how big are this gonna be? I told her, right, uh, who told you this needs to be big? Because you've seen a container ship big, right? Now with all these technologies, we can operate like fish, schools of fish, swarms of them. Depending on the demand, we don't have to, you know, run an empty submarine. We run what we need. So things like that. So it's amazing. I mean, the, the more you dive into it, the more you speak to the communities in COP26 now, it's incredible for me. So let's come back to COP26. I've met island communities who can see how we can help them during the hurricane season, regular food supply, medical supplies. 
So a lot of island communities are interested in, in, in getting some help from uh, from the submarine to escape the weather. Uh, and then uh, under ice con icy conditions, for example, uh, lots, lots of postal services are keen to, to get involved. Um, so yeah, very uh, encouraging from the um, uh, people I've met. Generally, in big terms, uh, from the COP26, what I expect is that it should not be another failure, you know, like before. And, and we have done a lot. I've seen a lot of commitments, but we need binding agreements and we really need to take some action. Uh, I hope in the next few days we will see the urgency of, of taking some real action and not just a political uh, you know, fanfare and, and meetings and, and, and in the end nothing really concrete, you know, because time is running out. We all know. Uh, we, time is running out. You know, we really need to step, the step our game up. I mean, it's too late. Yeah, um, well, time is running out. Um, and as I mentioned, Drew, um, I, could, I could stand here and talk to you for hours about this product, but um, the sun has now well and truly set. The wind is, is showing no sign of stopping, no sign of stopping, and uh, the rain's still coming down. So I'll say thank you very much. Best of luck with getting ocean waves um, in the water and, and scaled up over the, over the coming months. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Yeah, if anyone, anyone wants to get involved, we're looking for people. We're, we're recruiting as well. And anyone wants to get involved and use the skills to do something uh, for the ocean, restore the ocean with the commercial model we're looking to uh, hire them and speak to them good stuff oceanways.co okay. <laughs> thank you so much Drew. Um, and i think rather than handing back to my future self in a windowless hotel room i'll enjoy the fresh air here and close off the show right here so uh, that brings us to an end of episode 11 of the cop 26 covered podcast uh, i'll be back tomorrow for what is lining up to be a very special episode of cop 26 covered because it's transport day uh, and so the plan is to look at what net zero transport looks like across trains planes and automobiles uh, including a trip on a hydrogen powered train a talk next to a zero carbon plane which is just across from here uh, and a virtual reality experience on a zero emission connected car uh, so hopefully all of that goes to plan lots to look forward to uh, and please do make sure you've subscribed to this podcast you can subscribe to cop26 covered wherever you get your podcasts and for full information and audio links visit ed.net forward slash podcasts forward slash cop26 uh, but for now from uh, an innovation packed wet and windy green zone here at COP26. I'll say goodbye and speak tomorrow.